Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, and welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I'm your host, Ian Cook. Today we're talking about democracy against development, lower caste politics and political modernity in post-colonial India by Jeffrey Witso. The book is published by University of Chicago Press, and Jeffrey is Assistant Professor of Anthropology at Union College in New York. The book takes the reader into urban and especially rural Bihar and into the world of so-called lower caste politics. What the book does is it shows how democratic mobilization around caste lines often destabilizes state development projects. It moves across different scales of the state and is a really wonderful account of how post-colonial democracy functions. I had the pleasure of speaking with Jeffrey just a few minutes before. Okay, so it gives me great pleasure to welcome Jeff to the show. Thanks a lot for your wonderful book and thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks a lot. Wonderful. So before we talk about the book itself, I was wondering, could you first please tell us a little bit about your academic background? Well, the, the book came out of a Ph.D. dissertation at, uh, at Cambridge in social anthropology. So that was, you know, it originally was my dissertation. Mm-hmm. Okay. So and that's the origin of the whole thing. Wonderful. Okay. So this book is about uh, lower caste politics in India, uh, specifically this northern, uh, larger rural, relatively poor state of Bihar. So before we look at the detail, could you first please explain a little bit behind your provocative title, Democracy? against development, and also what you term post-colonial democracy? Sure, yeah. So, uh, I mean, democracy against development highlights a tension that I argue exists between the project of state-directed development and and the, the transformations that have taken place um, through democracy, particularly through, through uh, popular sovereignties, through an electoral system, um, where people vote, and in India, as I'm sure you know, poor people vote, uh, rural people vote, illiterate people vote, lower caste people vote. And so part of what I do in this book is I document some of the transformations that have taken place through uh, democracy. But democracy plays out, I argue, in very different ways in India, and particularly in Bihar, um, than perhaps in some other Context. And so I, I use this concept of post-colonial democracy to highlight the ways in which uh, the specificities of the post-colonial sh- state shapes democratic practice. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. Now, one of the, the larger arguments that you, that you make in your book is that caste politics can't be, understand, can't be understood without also understanding this ongoing process of state formation. So, Zoni, could you please outline this process in the post-colonial period? Yeah, so, um, so the post-colonial state is, in crucial ways, uh, a product of, of a longer history of, of, of colonialism. And so, you know, the kind of the term uh, post-colonial state formation uh, reflects the, the, the colonial legacy and how it continues to shape um, the state and, and politics in, in post-colonial India. But in the post-colonial period, the, the state is mobilized as, a, as an agent of development. Um, 
and so I mean I guess that's the the, the state formation from you know 1947 on is is really uh, the the state element state, but at the same time, uh, various groups and particularly the the caste groups uh, that that are dominant in village contexts um, gaining access and control over state institutions in order to maintain and reproduce their dominance at the local level. And so these kind of two things happen simultaneously, and I argue are, are crucial for understanding um, caste politics. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. Um, now, like I said before, this, this, uh, the, the focus or the geographical focus of your book is, is Bihar. And now for someone who knows very little about the politics of Bihar, like myself, the, the one name that I do know is, uh, is Lalu Yadav. Now, so Uniki, do you tell people who haven't read the book or who may not know very much about him, who he is, how he, how somebody like himself, who's from a so-called backwards caste, managed to gain power, and why was he continually so successful in elections? Yeah, so Lalu Yadav is one of these, uh, you know, these characters in Indian politics that, that that really shaped Bihar's kind of political history from 1990 until you know 2005. He's still an active player in the elections that are coming up. Uh, He's one of the main players, but for this period, he completely dominated. When I when I would ask people, you know, who the most important people in Bihar's political world were uh, during this period, this time, say two thousand and two, two thousand three, that was kind of when I the, the 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 most field work I did. The longest period was was in you know two thousand two, two thousand three. They would tell me, you know, number one is Lalu, number two is Lalu, number three is Lalu. Like <laughs> there's no one, there's no one else uh, that matters. So he had, he had completely dominated. He created this cult of personality around him. Um, it's interesting, though. I mean, when he came to power in 1990, he didn't have that stature at all. It was kind of almost, I mean, there was a lot of political maneuvering. He barely became chief minister. But a couple of things happened which allowed him to consolidate his political position. One was, was Mondal. And so he becomes chief minister, um, you know, right before the whole Mondal uh, bomb exploded and he capitalized on it to become this, you know, to, to project himself as a militant backward caste leader fighting against the centuries of upper caste, forward caste dominance. And so in this way, he was able to, to create a forward versus backward caste political uh, dichotomy or, or it, uh, identity and successfully consolidated. So consolidating the, the newly emergent uh, OBCs, the other backward classes, the, the backward caste, with, with the Dalits, uh, which created this, this very powerful political combination. And also, soon after, the, the whole controversy over, over, uh, over the, uh, um, the temple to Ram in Ayodhya, uh, the Babri Masjid takes place, and he, and he famously arrests L.K. Advani, becoming what many people refer to as a as a messiah for the Muslim, mm-hmm. had kind of a Muslim support-based caste alliance. Uh, and that kind of creates an electoral alliance, which allows him to rule, basically, him and his wife, to, to remain uh, chief ministers for, you know, 15 years, which up to that point had been unprecedented in Bihar. Mm-hmm. We should point out exactly the, in his first part of his rule, he was, he was in jail and his wife was ruling, basically, as, in, as his proxy. Yeah, so he goes. He goes to jail in the wake of the fodder scam, and uh, Robbery Devi is installed as 
as chief minister just right before he's arrested. This kind of dramatic scene. And yeah, he, he, still, he still basically rules the state through, you know, what people refer to as his cell phone Raj. <laughs> okay, wonderful. Let's talk a little bit about um, chapter three. Now, in this uh, chapter, you explore what you say a local journalist calls bureaucracy against democracy. So this is, uh, in this chapter, you want to explore, I suppose, the importance of, of castes, different castes in, in different offices and at different levels of the state. So I was wondering, in what ways is there a tension between bureaucracy and democracy? Well, there's, there's immense tension, and that's part of, you know, that's really part of what I want to highlight or emphasize through the title, Democracy Against Development, is this tension between the bureaucracy and the political Class. That's also key for understanding this concept of post-colonial democracy. The bureaucracy in India is is in very in many ways uh, a continuation of of the of the colonial bureaucracy. Right? It was created uh, by the Raj for the purposes of of colonial rule, and so I argue that there's there's really a you know an inherent contradiction between that world and the world of of party politics, and they really were two different worlds as I. You know, uh, start out that chapter. The uh, you know when you as you move between the office of the district magistrate and and the the political center of power, which was the Zilla Parishad's office in uh, in Bhojpur, it's like moving between two different universes, completely different sets of people, completely different ways of thinking, um, and so so there's this tension. But so so what happened in Bihar was was from 1990, OB, the lower caste and particularly OBCs. Uh, gained dominance, gained political dominance. But they gained control of the state government, right? This is part of what uh, Christoph Jaffrelo termed the silent revolution in North India. But the problem is controlling, controlling the legislative assembly, even having the chief ministership, even having, you know, control of the different, uh, having ministers in control of the various departments doesn't necessarily automatically give control of the entire state apparatus. And so there was this, this tension, this continuing tension between uh, bureaucrats and politicians, which contributed in no small degree to the breakdown, to the so-called breakdown of governance that occurred in Bihar during this period. Thanks. Now, one of the one of the sort of ongoing themes that, that runs through the book is uh, is Yadav's uh, party's idea of social justice, and um, what you look at in the fourth chapter, you look at how this project of social justice plays out in a particular region. So, my question in relation to this chapter is: is how and in what ways does caste interrelate with territorial power and with different state institutions? Great. Thanks. So. A couple of ways. One, I mean, within the bureaucracy, uh, I mean, this is one of the things that happened, like to follow on from, from chapter three. So while lower caste dominated now politics, right, forward caste or upper caste still, uh, still, I think even till today, have, have a dispor- disproportionate uh, influence within state institutions. Now, this is tied very specifically and crucially to, to the village, and to control over, over the village and over land in particular. And so, so caste-based territorial uh, power is rooted, I think, most crucially in the village and in control over land. Mm-hmm. Now, democracy did 
democratic empowerment did, did challenge this in pretty important ways. And so, I mean, if you look in the, during the Congress period, you had, um, you know, say in, in, in uh, Rajnagar, in my, the name I'm, you know, using to refer to my research village, the pseudonym that I'm using to refer to my research village, you had Rajput dominance that extended all the way back to the, into, the, into the colonial period, probably even before. And this, this, this was a, this was a, you know, so, so Rajputs controlled, they owned the most land, they owned, you know, all the land during the Zamindari period. Um, they still controlled, they were the biggest landlords after independence. They, so they controlled the regional economy. They had networks that extended into, you know, so there were people in the prominent families that there were, there were powerful police, bureaucrats, judges, um, they they dominated the Congress Party, and so they had, they controlled all these different bases of power. And so, from the 1990s, what happens is suddenly polit- they lose political control, and so this has profound impacts on who controls the village. Because you really need contacts with government, you need contacts with uh, party politics in order to to maintain control over the space of the village. And so that's, I mean, one of the things that I document. In, in Rajnagar is this shift of, 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 of control. And so the Rajputs basically lost control of the village. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you call this village the, the multiple village at one point. Yeah, because the, the kind of, uh, you know, Louis de Mont had argued at one point that the, the, the sense of the unity of the village was really the, a unity imposed by the dominant caste. And once that dominance was challenged, suddenly there wasn't a single village. It was almost as if there were multiple villages. And, and, and this was a real lived reality. I mean, most people, almost nobody moved, went across all the different places, the spaces in the village, right? So the village is organized around uh, various caste tolas. And since caste had become explicitly politicized, these different areas of the village, these different tolas had also become politicized. And they really had become almost separate, you know, separate worlds. And I was, I was one of the few place people, also the, the, the headman of the village, the Mokia would be another person who actually moved rather freely across these different spaces. So yeah, the, the, the power, the kind of spaces of influence, pockets of party support, uh, multiplied basically in the village, the, the, the number of brokers, of people that mediated between the village and various state institutions, all of these things uh, multiplied or, you know, became multiple. And so, you know, that's why I use this term, the multiple village. <laughs> and you must have lived in, in one part of the village. So how was it as a, as a researcher to, when you did go into these other parts of the villages? Did people associate you with, with certain, certain groups? Yeah, this is probably the most challenging uh, part of doing fieldwork in this environment. So in a, in, a, in a heightened kind of politicized environment and, and an environment where there was real, there was, there was violence, right? So this whole process of lower caste empowerment was, was quite disruptive and, and involved uh, various types of, of, of violence, uh, criminality, uh, increase in criminality. And so the village became quite tense, right? And so here I am coming to study the village and I'm moving between these spaces. So it was, it was quite difficult uh, in, in terms of, you know, being able to move across various spaces while maintaining 
good relations and in, in you know and across the village was you know I spent a lot of my time negotiating this when I got to the village I wanted you know I basically arrived and and met with the headman and said that I wanted to leave to to do a study in the village the the headman was a, a yadav mukia and in many ways represented this transfer of power that had occurred and that I was studying um I I didn't know where to live it was a real it was a real problem. Most anthropologists who have lived with families doing fieldwork in villages in India have tended to live with, with upper caste, mm-hmm. partly just out of convenience, partly because that's what's expected. And so, you know, it was, there were many very large uh, houses that were almost vacant, right? Upper caste Rajput houses. And I was given many offers, you know, to stay in um, these houses. It was kind of, uh, I was offered free meals. I was offered all kinds of things. But I felt that if I had, if I had stayed with the Rajputs, it would have completely undermined my, my research, right? I would have been associated with them, and it would have been difficult to gain the, the trust of, of the lower caste. And so I kind of found, a, I think, a good uh, compromise. So I, I lived with a, a Muslim family. It would have been a, an OBC, a Muslim family, uh, who lived right in the center of the village and in one of the few kind of mixed caste areas, it would be, you know, a lot of the small caste, a lot of castes that are categorized as annexure one within Bihar's unique system of uh, dividing the OPC category into two annexures. And so, and it was a family that had been uh, small kind of petty zamindars in the past, but they had basically lost all their land and they were, uh, they were, you know, experiencing some economic hardship, and so I was able to be a paying guest, and you know, it was kind of a, a win-win for everyone. The, it was good because the because of the alliance between particular Muslims and Yadavs, or Muslims and and, and backward caste that Lalu Yadav had, had forged. So that was a place where lower caste felt comfortable coming, um, but also because this the family had been small-scale zamindars in the past, they had kind of a history of good relations with the, the, the Rajput ex-zamindars. And so it was as close to a neutral space within the village as I could find. And so it ended up being an ideal place to, to base myself. Mm-hmm. It was also right. right in the center. It was also right in the center of the village. And so, you know, it, it, was, it was just good. It was a good spot to be able to negotiate these, you know, the, 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 the multiple villages, I guess. Mm-hmm. Wonderful, but I, I sp- you mentioned before there was um, there was quite a lot of tension um, around caste issues. I suppose this also was quite a productive tension in terms of you for the research as well. People wanted to talk about it. I won't say necessarily that they wanted to talk about it. It was just very tense. And so, for instance, the hardest group to engage were the Rajputs, partly because I didn't live with them, and so I think they had felt that I, uh, you know, that was kind of an insult, I guess. Um, that I didn't live with them because it would have just been ex- expected in the past that any outsider who was coming to stay in the village, uh, whether a government official, a politician, would, just as a matter of fact, stay with them. And so the fact I was in the village and not staying with them was, was I think, highlighted or you know emphasized the changes that had taken place, right? They, they, they really didn't like... They didn't like the changes that were happening for, for obvious reasons. And so they really didn't like to talk about it. 
it was interesting because I mean they speak more freely now than they did during that time because um, I continue to go back to the village pretty much every year and now it's much easier to talk with them although they kind of have selective memory they don't quite remember how <laughs> how bad it was for them during this period and so no it wasn't necessarily easy and particularly when you're getting to the micro kind of dynamics um, it was hard because everyone knew I was speaking to, every, to, to, to the other side so to speak right and so uh, I remember the first couple of weeks in the village, I was basically being tracked. Every, everyone knew everyone that I was speaking with, mm-hmm. too. And, and, you know, I was constantly, I was constantly being uh, told, you know, don't speak to this person. He's not good. You know, you shouldn't be in that part of the village. And so it wasn't necessarily something that everyone wanted to talk about. It, it, was, it was very tense. And there was a lot writing on it. And so, um, you know finding the kind of politically active people. So I basically had to find people that were plugged into politics and who wanted to speak about it. But a lot of people, even, even say lower caste, say the people who lived right around where I lived, these Annister one, you know, caste, um, small scale traders or, um, um, craftspeople, they, they didn't necessarily want to talk at all because they felt, the situation had become quite destabilizing and everyone was a little bit on edge. And so it wasn't necessarily easy to get people to talk. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I also think what's, uh, what's nice about your book is that you, 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 you problematize anyway, this idea of this being understood as identity politics, but, but one of the ways in which you, you help to give a more nuanced idea of this is by adding class to the analysis as well. Like as you point out, there's not just one, you know, Yadav, there's many different types. Can you tell us a little bit about how class plays into caste? Yeah, so I mean, it's one of the kind of misnomers that, you know, the the politics of the lower caste politics was just an identity politics, that it, you know, gave people voice, but nothing else. Um, Because caste is so centered on on control of land and of, of, of just the public space of the village, but also of regional economic activity and is tied into control or into influence. There's caste networks that um, enable people to have influence within state institutions. So because of all these things, I mean, there is, I mean, class is very much tied into it. And so, you know, part of what I do, um, part of what, what I, what I do in chapter uh, six is I look at the differences just within the Yadav caste in Rajnagar. And there's basically three tolas, three Yadav tolas in Rajnagar. And they're, they're very different. I mean, these are groups that don't inter- that they would never, you know, think of, of having, even attending each other's uh, uh, marriages, for, for example. And in the past, there had actually been uh, violent conflicts between two of the Yadav tolas. It actually took me, I think, two or three months living in the village to even find out about this history of conflict. And it was when the Mukia was drunk one night and it had just been after, uh, it had just been after a, a, a festival. And he told me about, you know, I finally learned about this history of conflict. And, and so, so cast is political identity. and was actually concealing these very significant internal, um, contradictions, internal, uh, variation, even within a single village. And so, so basically, there was—I mean, there were there was a, a whole group of, of Yadavs in the village who had gotten public employment, particularly in the railways, and many of them were now retiring. 
Um, there was another section that had that had basically they were they were strong agriculturalists and they had been agriculturalists kind of I think risen um, from the from the the seventies. And then there was a, another tola that that was basically just uh, adjacent to the to the Dalit tola, where they had been laborers until fairly recently, and they were the ones who were really um, I thought where the greatest change was happening in the village because they were taking over agriculture, they were taking over direct cultivation, uh, and moving away from from labor. Although they still they still did perform various types of labor, particularly in in, in the, the nearby sand mining uh, industry. And so these groups were very different, and there was an, a great uh, a great amount of class differentiation. But politically, they were united, right? So to such an extent where it was hard for me to even get the history of their of, of their feuds and conflicts from the from the from you know past decades. Mm-hmm. And so and and this the South Tola was also the South Yadav Tola was also where there was the greatest economic dynamism, right? And so as as upper caste, I mean, one of the one of the things that happened in Rajnagar was the Rajputs had basically given up cultivation altogether. There were only a couple of households that cultivated any land, uh, and many households that shifted from sharecropping to to just get, getting a rent, cash rent for for their land. Because land ownership was kind of the thing that that didn't change as much as we might expect. So so the Rajputs still controlled a great uh, a, a lot of land. But they were no longer able to use it productively, right? They had to just get cash, basically, uh, rental from it. Because even, even sharecropping requires one to have influence and, and dominance to some extent within the village. Um, on the other hand, other castes, particularly Yadavs, had, had, were taking over cultivation uh, from and sharecropping. So the, the, the most successful sharecroppers were now all Yadavs. And so there was really an economic uh, dimension to the so the changes that were taking place in Rajnagar. Also, I mean, in terms of small shops, in terms of various regional economic activity, dairy businesses, this kind of thing. I mean, Yadavs had suddenly, uh, in particular, but other castes as well, it suddenly now uh, were filling the space kind of vacated by, by the Rajput ex-Zamindars. Another example would be sand mining, which is the most important regional economic activity. So the, the group that had controlled sand mining had, had been almost entirely Rajput until, until the 1990s. By the time of my field work, it was basically all controlled by OBCs at the high level. It's called the syndicate. Um, and so that's another example of kind of regional economic activities where uh, OBC uh, business people had, had, had taken over. Other examples would be um, the regional drug trade. Uh, various criminal networks, which were actually quite important economic uh, activities, also had been mainly Rajput and now had been uh, kind of diversified. So now there were there were a lot of OBCs involved as well. Mm-hmm. So there, is, so the, ba- the the basic lesson is there were economic impacts and pretty important economic impacts and changes that occurred in the wake of the politics of lower caste empowerment. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Now, you, you mentioned actually towards the end of towards the end of the book, uh, like after three successful elections, you know, the the Yadav government fell. So I was wondering, what, what does that mean in terms of lower caste politics? What did his fall mean? So the analysis, I mean, my analysis of it is that, I mean, basically what happened is, uh, in many ways, there were two things. One, in many ways, Lalu Yadav was a victim of his own success. <laughs> so a lot of changes did take place, but. 
I mean, there's a limitation to changes that can occur just through political mobilization, right? Because there wasn't really an institutionalization, partly because there was no, I mean, the party, his party was quite, it was centered on him and it was basically these loose networks centered ultimately uh, on him. He controlled them. Um, so there was no, there wasn't a Cotter based party that could really institutionalize some of the political change. Also, because of this caste division between the bureaucracy and the political class, uh, it was impossible to use the state effectively, right, in order to, to, to institutionalize uh, the transfers of power, the changes that took place. And so there were these inherent limitations in what could be achieved simply through political mobilization. On the other hand, there were also inherent contradictions within the alliance. And so the backward caste alliance was dominated by Yadavs. Yadavs were at the forefront. They considered themselves the vanguard. And so for many lower caste people who were not Yadav, uh, lower caste empowerment became, or backward caste empowerment effectively became Yadav empowerment, or what was referred to as Yadav Raj. So in particular, two groups kind of, uh, I mean, in many ways, Two groups really broke. First, I mean, there was the opposition grew over time, and then the the fodder scam and uh, the fodder scam and Lalu going to jail and all this kind of intensified uh, a feeling from I think the RJD that they were under attack, right? And so the opposition grows. It's partly the upper caste trying to regain control. It's partly unsatisfied. Lower castes, so the first are the Kormis, Nitish Kumar's caste, who, who, who break. Um, but then also by 2005, there's other groups that emerge for the first time as important political forces. The most important is the Annixture One caste, which are these small castes. In, in Bihar, the OBC category is divided into two. So the Annixture One are, are the backward amongst the backward castes. And they... They consolidated for the first time, and they backed they backed the NDA against the RJD. So this was absolutely crucial because they're like thirty two percent of the ele- of, of of the population. I mean, it's hard to know exactly, but um, they're probably around 30 two percent of the population. The other group was the the Muslim the Muslim uh, um, voters split also along forward and backward caste lines. And so you suddenly had backward caste Muslims. And so backward caste Muslims plus Annixture One plus caste like the Kurmis, who had long been um, alienated, all aligned with the upper castes, right, in order. And, and that's basically the electoral alliance that, that won in 2005. There were two elections. And so the first was a, was a hung assembly. Um, there was a period of president's rule. And then... And then in the second election in 2005, this, this alliance won a decisive victory, ending uh, 15 years of RJD rule. <laughs> and so in a way, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't just the, the limitations of what was achievable just through political mobilization, through kind of a disruptive politics of, of caste empowerment, but also, um, I, I argue, the politics of caste deepened in many ways. And so, so now the... the Backward amongst the backward castes, 
caste Muslims suddenly become important political forces, right? And so in, any, in some ways you could see the 2005 election is representing a movement downwards, but also now the upper caste are, are part of this alliance as well. And, and this is the contradiction that, that plays out up till today, right? So that, that kind of defines the, the, next, uh, the next decade. Mm-hmm. It'll definitely be fascinating to, to see which way, in which ways that develops. Now, I shot through this book quite quickly. I've asked sort of questions that might not have been what you think were the most important uh, about what you think are the most important aspects of the book. So I was wondering if I've missed anything that you'd like to highlight for those who have not yet had the chance to read the book. Um, no, I would just say, you know, in terms of the general, the, the basic argument of post-colonial democracy, I mean, the key, the key is to understand the specificities of the post-colonial state and, and how the state intersects with everyday life in the village and, and how this shapes how this shapes democratic practice. Because if you don't understand these things, it's very difficult to understand what happened in Bihar from nineteen ninety to two thousand and five. It you know most I would say that, you know, this is this was a pivotal this was a pivotal period in Bihar's political history. I mean there were there were really uh, historic changes that took place. And I think they're they're largely misunderstood what happened. And people see, you know, that everyone knows about, you know, charges of corruption and, and kind of the jungle raj and the breakdown of law and order and the breakdown of governance. But um, and so often it's it's interpreted as, you know, self-serving politicians who kind of fooled the electorate and a representation of, you know, backwardness. And uh, but it was it was much more than that. I mean, this is this is a product of a, of a long history of, of democratic um, change. And I think if we're going to understand what democracy means in a place like Bihar, and I mean, to even extend further, what, what democracy means in, in much of the world, where it's not, it's not necessarily, democracy is not going to necessarily play out the same way that it does in, in say, North America and, 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 and Western Europe. Um, I think there's valuable lessons uh, here. And, and to me, I mean, Bihar's political history can be seen as a as oscillating between between this project of of state directed development and demands for development and disruptive political mobilizations, which in Bihar are centered around caste for very good reasons, because caste is so important at the village level, because caste is so important. Uh, for everyday for everyday life, including economic activities, right? And so there's this oscillation between a politics centered around demands for development, and then and then this destabilizing political mobilization centered around caste. And you know, so so in the early period, Bihar is has a fairly stable government. And then in the 60s, you have a you know OBC politics emerges, and you have a whole decade of destabilization, followed by the Congress returning to power. Uh, some stability, then the 1990s, and you have this whole, you know, period of, 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 of destabilizing politics. Then after 2005, development returns. We'll see what the future brings. But it is actually a political trajectory that, that is, does produce change. And so it can be hard today. The, the, the kind of uh, the power that Rajput ex-Zamindars wielded isn't there anymore. It's not that they don't still have influence. But it's definitely been weakened, and this was one one impact of uh, of this whole period. 
So I think it's important to take into account. Yeah, totally. And I think these aspects exactly come through in the book. So now that this book is, is finished, I was wondering what are your current and future projects? What are you working on now? Yeah, so I'm I, a couple of projects. One, I, I've continued work on the on the sand mafia, the sand mining industry, and the group that controls it, uh, the syndicate, and using this as a window into understanding uh, regional political economy and how economic change is, is is reshaping regional political economy, right in this area, Bojpur. Um, so that's one project. And then I've, I've also, I've, I've continued to, to study basically development. So after 2005, Nitish Kumar comes to power with the NDA and Bihar is suddenly now seen as at the forefront of, of, of development, right? Nitish Kumar becomes a Vikash Parush, a, a man of development. And so basically studying that and I've, I've been doing a lot of work on, uh, particularly on uh, NREGA, the National Rural Employment Guarantee Act, mm-hmm. and how that actually plays out in everyday uh, everyday practice of, of NREGA. So, building on my previous work, but looking at how kind of the, the new the new uh, development models that are being pushed in Bihar actually play out on the grounds. Um, there's also some very interesting uh, activists, grassroots activists, that are organizing. Uh, landless laborers in order to, to, to demand and actualize their rights under. So the National Rural Employment Guarantee Act guarantees 100 days of work at the minimum wage. So it's, it's right, it's, it was the product of a right-to-work movement. And so like, part of what I argue in, in Democracy Against Development is that democracy, post-colonial democracy in, in India, and particularly in Bihar, uh, privileges popular sovereignty as opposed to liberalism. So the idea of individual rights isn't, isn't at the center of, of, of political life. So the, but these activists are trying to, to use this idea of rights, right? So after, after 2005, uh, when NRG, NREGA is legislated, suddenly now like rights-based development becomes the center of, uh, for, for that decade, basically, of all the key uh, legislation. And so... So what does that mean? So basically, that's what I'm, I'm researching this summer is, is uh, efforts by, by a- grassroots activists to actualize rights by organizing uh, the rural poor. Wonderful. They both sound uh, completely fascinating projects. We look forward to hearing about them in the future. Um, there's nothing more for me to do apart from to thank you again for coming on the podcast. I really enjoyed reading your book. and It was a real pleasure speaking with you today. Excellent. Thank you. Okay. Wonderful. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks so much for downloading the new books in Salvation Studies podcast. I've been your host, Ian Cook. Today we've been talking about Democracy Against Development, Lower Caste Politics and Political Modernity in Post-Colonial India by Jeffrey Whitso. This was a really wonderful book. I had a great time speaking with Jeffrey and I hope you'll listen again next time. ta